you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm chapter 86 this morning. Psalm 86. I love to bring to you the word of God's grace. Everything else is just details. It's really the only thing I can relate to. Next week, my friend Darby preaches. The week following, the 14th, we'll begin a new series on Sunday mornings through the Gospel of Mark. I'm very excited about that. But I don't like to try not to jump right from one book to another, especially if it's a longer one on either side. And now especially since COVID has separated us all so much and uh, made us so distant from each other. I mean, we're here, but I feel like we don't really see each other, interact with each other like we used to. That's not a critique. That's nobody's fault or anything. It just seems that way. Uh, but I, between the series, I'd like to sit down with you, so to speak, here, open the album, and look at some pictures of God's grace together. And today I'd like to show you one from the Psalms, which are the content of our midweek devotionals also. But um, have your Bible there, your bulletin insert at Psalm 86. King David is in... Um, Tremendous need. What does the king who foreshadows the king of kings do when he is in need? What does David show us here about Jesus? And what does David show us about our need for him? To fear God is to tremble at the fact that he loves you. The one who truly fears the Lord cries out in total dependence on the love of this God to save. Let me pray. Father, open the eyes of our hearts to see the truth of your word. For me and for everyone who listens, Father, I pray that for your name, for your glory, for your people, you would overcome all that I am in these next moments to preach your word. So please watch over me, my mind, my mouth. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, my God, my rock, and my redeemer. And may everyone who hears believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I ask this in his name. Amen. Let me read the first seven verses of Psalm 86. David writes, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. David is completely dependent on his master, his Lord. That's how he's praying here. When you see Lord in all caps, it's the covenant name of God in Scripture. And he's so dependent, so much so is he dependent on his master, that he constantly reminds himself and God of their relationship. If you're utterly dependent on someone, what do you need them to do? What do you call on them for? Action, right? To do something. 
to help. And so we plead with one that we're dependent on. And so because God is the master and David is the servant, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Without you, I'm helpless. Poor and needy are his words. He's the king. Poor and needy. I need help and it has to come from you. Right. Verse three, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. He's calling on God to act. Notice this. David is not the one doing anything here. David is not acting. God is acting here, or at least that's what he's banking on. David is the servant. He's the helpless and needy servant that has to have someone who is actually capable of doing something to act on his behalf. So that's what he's calling out for. Incline your ear, O Lord. Bend down. Listen to me. Preserve me, in verse 2, because I'm godly. Now, when he says that he's godly here, he's not really talking about a level of righteousness he's living in or he's performing. He's saying that he's inclined toward God. He's godly. I depend on you. That makes me godly. You are my God. That's what godliness is in Psalm 86. Preserve my life because I am godly. And then he explains it. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. That's what makes him godly. That's the relationship. I trust in you. Deliver me. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul over and over. He's calling out for God to do something. Gladden my soul because, for, in verse 4, I lift up my soul to you. He has no hope other than God. So he's putting himself completely in the hands of God and says, you do this. Which is an amazing thing to pray. He, he needs God to make his soul glad. Do you notice that? Gladness for God's people is not something they drum up from within. It comes from the hand of God. So, for example, when we read the command later in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, that's a command to feel joy. Right? How do you command a feeling? Because if you command it, it's not genuine. No, 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 that's philosophy. That's not the Bible. That's a command to feel Joy, to be joyful. What we need to realize as we hear the command is that we're powerless to obey it. We're powerless to drum it up ourselves. The minute we feel down or are despairing, we are unable to obey that command. Or if you, maybe you just don't feel like it. Maybe you just don't feel like rejoicing. Then we're disobeying the command. Any moment of our lives, we don't feel that way. Right. So even our happiness and our rejoicing in life as believers are a gift of God's grace. They have to be provided or they will not happen. Verse four, gladden the soul of your servant. Right. I'm not glad. Gladden me. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. He can't do this. So he puts himself completely in the hands of God to do it for him. Now, isn't that so contrary to so much of what we've heard and what we hear in modern American Christianity today? For us, it's just do. You've been told to do this. Now do it. You have the Holy Spirit. Do it, right? 
You're responsible for this. It's up to you. You decide to have joy or you declare that you're joyful. You ever see it on Facebook? People speaking for God. God is saying to you today, be happy. Your blessing is coming. Really? I, I didn't hear that. But you heard it. And nothing happened all day. My tire got flat. People were ugly to me at work. The person in front of me in McDonald's drive through did not pull up. It was a horrible day. Right? You... But, but, but again, you can just randomly say, God is saying to you, no, 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 this is what God is saying to you. Right here. Right? Look at the text in verse 5. Look at that. Four. Gladden the soul of your servant, because to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. That's the basis of gladness for the believer. And when you, when you read here, what is the basis of gladness? For the believer. How will the gladness come? Forgiveness. Do you notice that? What does David need here? David has sinned. Forgiveness. The goodness and forgiveness of God gladden David's heart. Sin has made David despair. Gladden the soul of your servant in verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. How is the heart of the believer gladdened? Forgiveness. How is it brought into despair? Often. Sin. At least that's the case here. Or he wouldn't be praying for forgiveness. Sin has made David despair, but when we realize how much God has forgiven in us, it gladdens our hearts. It's meant to anyway. Not when we realize how much we have done for God. That is not the source of the believer's happiness. Happiness for a born-again child of God is not a moving target based on what you've done. Happiness for the believer is based on the objective, ongoing, enduring, eternal reality of God's forgiveness because of the sufficiency and beauty and glory of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. That is the source of the believer's happiness. What David is praying for is to tap in in his time to what God would do in our time to what God has done and finished in Christ. We think happiness comes as the result of obedience to God. We think happiness comes as a result of how much we have done for God. But the source of our joy is not what we do for God, but what God has done for us in Christ. Heaven will not be a hall of mirrors. We're not celebrating ourselves. We celebrate Christ. Rejoicing, gladness comes from the goodness and forgiveness of God in verse 5. And it comes, if you notice, to all who call upon Him. It comes to all who cry out to Him in total dependence on Him to act. We are the needy servant. He is the benevolent master. You are God. I am not. I need saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the language of Psalm 86 later in Romans 10. That calling out covers any cry that comes to God out of a needy heart. The heart that simply knows, I am the needy one, you are the master, save me. That's what's required. In verse 6, this is nothing but a plea for grace from David. Verse 6 is where he zeroes in on exactly what he's crying out for. Verses 8 through 13. 
There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you and glorify your name. Why? Well, because you do amazing things. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And we read that and say, oh, there it is. That's what I have to do. All right, what I have to do is, is, is walk in his truth. So that's where my work comes in. I have to walk in truth. I eventually want to graduate to not being such a needy servant. If, if, if David wasn't so needy, he wouldn't be in so much dependence on God as if that's a goal. Right. Don't always be so anxious to squeeze yourself into a text. To squeeze in your effort, to squeeze in your desire to work. Because then inevitably you're also going to try to squeeze in God's anger too, to motivate you. Right. I mean, it says right here in verse 11, unite my heart to fear your name. Right? If, if you read that as to, to be afraid of you, right? To make sure I learn how to get it right. I need to be afraid of you. I need to have this fear of you, even if it's a healthy fear, in order to stay on the straight and narrow. That's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says, to, to fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord. Beloved, if you truly want to be wise... Fear the Lord so much that you have to have Jesus or you will die. Stop trying to stand before Almighty God on your own merit. Stop acting like you're not His child when you are. And don't fear God so little that you actually trust your own works. Or think that your gladness, for example, is in your own hands to produce. The one who doesn't fear the Lord is the one who thinks that by his own works or by her own merit, they can earn the favor of God. They can keep the smile of God on them by their performance. That gets presented as though that's the fear of the Lord because they take him so seriously. I'm not sure that's what the fear of the Lord is. The psalmist says elsewhere, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. What is to fear if you've been forgiven? What does he mean there? The one truly fearing the Lord apparently prays like this all the time. In Psalm 86. I need you to save me. The fear of the Lord is neediness because God is holy and what he requires, we can not provide. That's what the true fear of the Lord actually sounds like. I need you to save me. That's gospel confidence. That's gospel boldness. You are too holy. Save me. God is so great that his grace is able to save from his holiness. Now that Jesus has come, the fear of the Lord 
does not carry with it the notion that those who actually fear him are the ones trying their best to walk uprightly. Jesus has revealed all the truth. The ones who truly fear the Lord are the ones who cast themselves completely on his grace, who know to cry out like David does in verses 5 and 6. Once Jesus revealed, as he did, that perfection is what is required, because what we do is when we hear a commandment, when we read a commandment, we, we put that out there, you have to obey this, and then if you corner that person and say, now, do you obey that? What are they going to say? Well, not all the time, but I try really hard. You know why Jesus died? Because your best efforts to obey what is required will fall short. And every time they fall short, debt is incurred. This is God we're dealing with. This is not a manager of a store or a restaurant. This is God. Jesus comes and says, therefore, so you heard it said, which is in the law, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. Jesus does this again and again. And then at the end of all this, he says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We talk about this all the time. That's what Jesus said. What do we do with that? Try our best to be perfect. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, you thought by not killing somebody, you will get God's approval. You know what God was actually telling you? Your heart is hateful and murderous. And for that, you are condemned. You're supposed to be perfect. You're not supposed to try your best. 99% good won't cut it. And nobody's going to have that high of a percentage. This is God. What would it mean then to fear him? To look at his holiness and say, I'll give that a shot. No. We're not downplaying the holiness of God. We're trying to put it where it belongs in our hearts and say, I can't live up to that. Save me. I can't even be glad when I sin against you. Make my heart glad. I'm dying here. I'm languishing. I can't stand before you on my own merit. I try really. David was a good man. But he's a man after God's own heart. How do you get better than that? And he still couldn't do it. The man after God's own heart went after Bathsheba and had her husband killed. Like, that's not cool. Right? We just brush right over it. Oh, he was David. Yeah. Murderer. I'm not... I don't mean I'm above David. That's not what I mean. I mean, this is that man praying, right? And look, beloved, look how seriously David took the Lord. David didn't take him lightly. But it's like, it's like David realized, I, you have to do that. You have to provide something or I can't, I can't even be happy. I, I, right? He, he was in need. And David feared the Lord. When you look in the Bible, who feared the Lord? David would be one of them. The fear, once Jesus revealed that perfection is what was actually required, not your best, but perfection, he's putting Israel, he's putting the world on notice that if there's not a gracious Savior here, we're finished. 
because perfection is required. Not because Jesus means God has watered down the standard. God sent Jesus because the standard never changes. Ever. The fear of the Lord is rooted in the reality of God's holiness. It's not a reference point of our best efforts. Can it be true, though? Can it be true? Because that sounds very good. Can it be true that to truly fear the Lord is to basically believe the gospel? It sounds like that's what Jesus is getting at in Luke 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. How did the Pharisee, how did the God-fearing man, so to speak, how did he pray? Right, so to speak. Lord, I, I, I fear you so much that I do everything right. I fast, I give to the poor, etc., etc. If you looked at that man's life from the outside, you would say, that's a God-fearing man. He fears the Lord, right? Look at how much he tries to obey and how seriously he takes the law and the scriptures. And then, I mean, what else could the fear of the Lord look like than someone who fears him so much that they try as hard as they can to get it right? Surely that's what the fear of the Lord looks like. And then there's this tax collector who can't even look up to heaven. Right, Physically, he can't even lift up his head. It's almost like he has the posture of David in Psalm 86. He just beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. When one actually fears the Lord. Or which one of those two men actually fears the Lord? Which one actually respects the blazing holiness of Almighty God? The one looking right at him or the one that can't even look up at him? The one so afraid he's doing all that he can... And bringing it to God for his approval, or the one who knows better than to even try. Well, it doesn't matter what the preacher thinks. It matters what Jesus thinks. Who does Jesus say walks away justified and right in the sight of God? Well, the world would say the Pharisee. And Jesus says the tax collector. The one with no list, but only a plea. He walks away justified, right with God. The one not telling the Lord what he's done, but what he needs. The true fear of the Lord is helplessness in light of who he is and who we are. The fear of the Lord is understanding something. What? What am I understanding? That I'm the needy servant and he's the benevolent master and that's going to be the relationship. It's never going to change. There will never be a role reversal. God, now you are in my debt. It will never happen. Ever. You could live for 10,000 years And be almost perfect the whole time. And the scale will not have changed a bit. Holiness doesn't work like math. That's the relationship. After all, what can be said by us at the end of the day? If we're honest, Lord, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Which means only doing your duty is not going to justify you. Beloved, do we even realize how dependent we are on God's grace? There's, there's never a moment, ever, 
where you actually have the right to stand up for yourself. Not ever. I mean, we can do all kinds of works, but if in doing them we've looked away from God, we can work until our fingers literally bleed, it won't be enough. So our only thing to do is to plead. What we have to give is a plea. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I'll cling. Lord, I'm an unworthy servant. Please help me. Incline your ear to me. Help me. I need you. Deliver me. Gladden my soul. Love me. Forgive me. Sounds so desperate. Yes, it does. That's why we don't like it. Do all that you can and all you will have done is what was expected in the first place, not what will save you. We aren't blank slates who simply decide at some point to go our own way and begin to rack up debt. We're born enemies of God. We're conceived estranged from Him. Our natural state is estrangement from God. We don't just need to perform and are unable, right? For that, the law would be sufficient. We also need washed And no matter how much we scrub, we cannot make ourselves clean. We can never deliver ourselves from the depths of Sheol, the place of the dead, as they wrote of in the Old Testament. Every time the disciples tried to show Jesus how serious they were, how committed they were, he brought them crashing back down to earth. Lord, let one of us sit at your right hand and one at your left when this is all said and done. Jesus says, you you don't know what you're asking. Lord, do you want us to call down fire on these people? Right? That's that's one of the best. You You see sinfulness, you see unbelief, and you think in your heart, God, rain down fire on these people. Not remembering that it could just as quickly and easily be rained down on you. Right? Lord, do you want us... You want us to call down fire on these people? And Jesus rebuked them. Doesn't Jesus care about sin? Right? That's what the Pharisee says. Ah, Jesus is soft on sin because he wants to be merciful to people. No, 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 no. No. Lord, I'll go with you to prison, even to death. Even if everybody else forsakes you, not me, Peter. You're going to deny me before the sun comes up tomorrow. Three times. Before the rooster crows. Peter wasn't lying. And he really believed that. I'm not making fun of him. Of course he believed that. He loved Jesus. He wanted to follow him. He wanted to obey him. Like everybody else can deny you. I'm not going to deny you. Does Jesus sanctify his desire? No. He crushes it. No. You're going to deny me three times. And Jesus pinpointed how many times. He could have just said, you're going to deny me. No, 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 you're going to do it three times before the rooster crows, before this night is out. But remember, I have prayed for you. All right, Satan asked permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, which is what he's doing for you right now. And when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Do you know what Jesus tolerates? Our sin. 
And he tolerates it better than anybody else. He puts up with it constantly. Because his blood is sufficient for such needy servants. That's not me telling you to go sin then. Who cares? It's I'm trying to make us see the reality of things. That's what we're going to do. There are commands we're breaking without ever even realizing we're breaking them. Like rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Just take that command. How many times do you think you broke that in the 24 hour, seven day span this week and knew it? Beloved, do we realize what Jesus has forgiven when he declares us righteous by grace through faith? How can God declare me righteous? I joke about it all the time. Do you know how mad I get when you don't pull up at McDonald's? <laughs> or just, just the, the, the natural lack of just, just be considerate. I become judge, jury, executioner. I would pull up. And I, it's funny, but like it, it is wicked. And here's the crazy thing. I, I would, I don't want to do that, but let somebody not pull up tomorrow morning. And I won't remember the sermon. Right? And it's, it's, again, I don't, I don't, I'm not, celebrating my anger. I'm trying to tell you that's the level at which we are in need. We, we forget it the minute it's not being said anymore. We forget it. And there, the, we, we focus on the, these, the, the, the areas where we've decided to focus and take it seriously. What about all the places we're just not remembering? Oh, that's right. That's a command. I'm not supposed to complain. I'm not supposed to murmur. Right? We think we're supposed to speak out when we see something wrong or unjust. unjust. No, No, we're not. Because what we're normally talking about is, I don't like the way that you did that, or I, I want it to go this way, and so I'm going to speak up. No, you're sinning. Be quick to hear, not quick to speak. We just, we just, we just incur debt. If, if God isn't a benevolent master that is filled with steadfast love and grace and mercy, beloved, what are we going to do? We're, we, we. Look at verse 13 again. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. So what he won't tolerate then is our righteousness. Our attempt to make it so he doesn't have to do the work of delivering us. We can do it ourselves. Why does God not tolerate that? Why, why, think about it. Why doesn't God say, you know what? If you realize that I'm here and try your best to worship me, I'll accept that. I appreciate that. We would appreciate that sort of thing. Why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't he bend a millimeter when it comes to salvation? Because he won't have an equal. He is God. He is the master in this relationship. He is the benefactor. He is not the beneficiary. No one else will be able to atone for our sins. No one. 
No one. Including us. He delivers from the depths of Sheol. And why does he do it? Because his steadfast love is great towards us. We say that in plain English. Because he loves us. Parents, you, you feel something of this love. We get some sense of it when we hear that there's a child conceived and we love them. We don't even know if it's a boy or a girl yet. And you feel like your whole life is going to change. You can't wait to see that face and you just love them. They've done nothing to earn it. And I realize, well, they've done nothing to hurt it either, but it doesn't, it wouldn't matter at that point. You know what it's like when you see that little face. I'm going to love you until the day that I die. And again, we'll get to it in a few minutes, actually. But if we can do that, what is God capable of? God will have no equal. What you and I need is steadfast love. That's what we need. Verse 14. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you Before them, like David does. That's what David is doing in Psalm 86. That's what he's referring to. Setting the Lord before him to do what? To beg and to plead of him as a savior. Insolent men are the ones that don't do that. They've risen up against me. It's difficult to find a place in scripture where at any time God condemned a person that was set on him. That recognized their need for him. Even the Syrophoenician woman, we'll get to that in Mark. That's a beautiful story. And Jesus is not being unkind to that woman. It's amazing what he does there. But it's it's the insolent ones are those who do not set you before them. That's what makes a person insolent, refusing to need him like David does. Refusing to put him where he has to provide for me or I'm done for. Insolence is not doing that. Anytime God has dealt with man's fallenness and frailty and rebellion and sinfulness, but that person's eyes are fixed on him, if God is still set before them, all you see for them is his mercy. And it's so so blinding that Paul has to talk about it later in Romans because of what happened to David when he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and actuality is sinning against God. Right? Your sins are forgiven. You just go on being king. I mean, I think we've talked about this before. What, what if you were Uriah's dad? Are you serious? He just gets, that's it? The prophet says his sins are forgiven? What about my son? Right? When Jesus comes and shows mercy, it was to show God's truthfulness because he had been looking over sins in the past like that. Not looking over them because he wasn't going to deal with them, but because he was going to deal with them in Christ. Christ reconciles Uriah's father to David. Christ does that. Christ does it every day. Right? When there, when there's an issue between my wife and I, or between a friend and I, or something, and what reconciles us is Christ and his cross. That's what makes up for the debt. I can't do it. Jesus responds very well to, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus responds very well to that. You know what Jesus does not respond well to? All these I have kept from my youth. Oh, Jesus doesn't tell him he's a liar? Isn't that amazing? No, you haven't. Jesus, 
What did Jesus say to the man who had done everything? One thing you still lack. Beloved, there will always be a lack. Always. What are we going to do if God requires perfection? No lack. No gaps. Which one of those two? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. All these I have kept from my youth. Which one has truly set his eyes on God to be his savior? Which one needs, realizes that he has need that he can't meet? Right? Why are we so convinced that God is this angry, mean, can't wait to look down on you, God, believing child of God? Why are we so convinced that he's like that? When he's never shown himself to be a God who casts out those who come running to him. A God who, when we turn to him and come to him, casts us away. He never does that. Jesus said he would never do that. You say, well, am I still allowed to go? Go! Because if you go, he's not a liar. Go! He won't cast you out. You don't understand. I've, I've done this 60 million times. Go! Go. If you go, he will not cast you away. And he's not a liar. Go. A bruised reed he will not break. What bruises a reed? What does that mean? What bends it? Sinfulness, beloved. That's what has bent David's back and driven him to his knees. He needs grace. He's bent. Rebellion damages us irreparably. I am bent by my sin. Ever bent by it. By the curse. By the world. By my own flesh. By the devil. I need a savior. I am poor and needy. When, it, when we come to him with nothing in our hands, beating our chest for mercy, he doesn't turn us away. Right? Don't, don't go to God with your face held up to Him. Let Him pick up your face and look into your eyes. He will never turn away someone that knows they need Him, beloved. He's good. You, you know what you're admitting when you're saying, I'm too sinful to come? You, you're, you're right where you need to be. You're right where you need to be. He is good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. But whom does he not have compassion on here? Right, The insolent one who does not set him before themselves. Those who are not coming to him. Beloved, if there is a desire in you to cry out to God as a father, he will gladly claim you as his own. Gladly. He's not afraid for the world to hear that he's your father. He's not afraid of any of the responsibility he would incur if he admits to being your father. He's not trying to deny the paternity test. If you cry out to him as a father, you will be his child. And he will not be ashamed of you. And he will take everything you need on his back and pay it as if it was his debt. But it isn't. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Declaring to the universe that he knew he was saving guilty people. 
and doing it for free. Insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life and they do not set you before them. If the Psalms are the songs of Jesus, and they are, if Jesus was praying here, who would Jesus be talking about? The insolent men who had risen up against him to take his life, to kill him. Would it be the adulteresses, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes? No, it would be the God-fearing people. The people who claim to be so righteous, they'd be the Pharisees and scribes that have not set God before themselves. They set him in the rearview mirror and have pointed their ship ahead to try and please him. Jesus called them vipers, God's enemies. That I, I wish we would believe that and grasp its implications for today. That that's who Jesus was upset with. Not the people we don't want in our church. Right? You're going to let them in here? Do they need Jesus? You going to stand at the door and keep them away because they're sinners? Who could make a better claim to be more serious about fearing God than a Pharisee, a tax collector, a sinner. That's who has the claim. That's where Jesus drew near. That's who he had bread and wine with. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If that's all you get from this today, that's plenty. If all you remember is verse 15, that's plenty. It's a lot better than anything I can say. Our God is slow to anger. You see, kids, God is not like your dad. I need him. And it gets old. But that's the way it is. That's the way it is. How many of us walk through this life thinking that God is always disappointed, always angry, always upset with us? No, we believe he's not going to strike us down with lightning, but he's not happy with us. Right? He's disappointed with us all the time. You remember that old, uh, old Ray Bolt song, Feel the Nails? Horrible, unbiblical trash. Nobody's going to admit it now, right? Oh, I did. Oh, I don't know that song. <laughs> Horrible song. Horrible. Does he still feel the nails every time I fail? Does he hear the crowd cry crucify again? Am I causing him pain? Then I know I've got to change. Because I just can't bear the thought of hurting you. Well then all Jesus Christ must ever feel is pain. Right? When is a believer somewhere in the world not sinning? So all he ever feels is the pain of the cross over and over and over again. Glorified and reigning at the right hand of God the Father, his his work finished, but all he ever feels is nails because we keep messing up. 
and we keep causing him pain. And we hear that song and we just play it again and again. That's right, that's right, that's right. Isn't it funny that that never makes you stop sinning though? Right, just... At what point is there 100% obedience from the world rising up like a fragrant aroma to the nostrils of Jesus? When, goodness sakes, you figure at any given moment at least 50% of believers in the world, let's just... At ballpark, at least 50% of believers in the world in any given moment are, are sinning, okay? Let's just say it's half. Poor Jesus is getting the nails hammered in his hands again and again and again and again every day. No, he isn't. If, if we would quit buying that trash, they might quit making it. How badly do you want to feel, beloved? God delivers from the depths of Sheol, not your feelings of guilt. I mean, how, how, how sorry for ourselves do we think we need to be before God will know that we take Him seriously? You're thinking of God as an earthly father when you think like that. Because there are a million earthly fathers that you'll never be able to do enough. You'll never be able to measure up. It will never be good enough. There are tons of earthly fathers like that. There are tons of earthly fathers that will disown you the more that you fail, the more that you need their love because you keep doing things to hurt it. But God is not a father like that. What's God like? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We think the minute we mess up, God is going to stamp us out like this. Didn't have your devotions this morning, flat tire on the way to work. Complained, you're going to get a stomachache. Slow to anger though. You think he's just, man, go ahead. Go ahead and mess up. Do it. Do it. No. Slow. And we, we just, slow to anger. And, and for you, believer, you say, well, when does he get mad? 2,000 years ago. And Jesus took all of it. Rest. He is your propitiation. He is your wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Believe in that and be at rest. You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You're going to be okay. Maybe he's all right with you, struggling believer. Just maybe. He's not winking at your sin. He's not smiling at it. It's just Jesus has absorbed the wrath. See, God took it very seriously in Calvary. He just doesn't exact the punishment from you. Maybe what Jesus did covers everything that you and I lack. Now, if you're trying to earn God's favor, right? If you refuse to rest in grace, then you will constantly feel the displeasure of your own failure. Absolutely. Just don't attribute that feeling to God. God is perfectly pleased with you because you're in Christ. It's it's not God that's displeased with you. It's yourself and maybe everyone and everything else. But the devil works to convict you of your fallenness. That's what he does. It's the accuser who wants you to try to gain the approval of a God who's already pleased with you and his son. Because Satan knows nothing will send you running away from him faster, if you're honest. Satan knows how holy God is, and don't think the serpent won't use that against you. 
Leverage, it's, it's like my friend Darby Livingston said, if you've never felt the smile of God, it's because you're looking for it in all the wrong places. Why keep looking for what you've already found? 16 and 17. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. People will hate you if God helps you and comforts you. Because we hate grace. We hate it. It just doesn't sit well with us when people either don't get what they deserve or when they don't pull their weight. And it looks like Jesus just loves to save people like that. Our hearts need broken. We need to get in front of God's mirror. Be faced with the awful and beautiful reality of what God has forgiven by having mercy on us. Show me a sign of your favor. Again, imagine Jesus praying this. What would be a sign of God's favor on Jesus? The resurrection. God raised him from the dead, vindicating him, his claims, his work completely. Now, what would be a sign of God's favor on us? Show me a sign of your favor. Where do we think that can be found? Beloved, where do the followers of Jesus, what is a sign of God's favor on us as we pray this? The Holy Spirit who seals and abides in us. He is the sign of God's favor, the proof that you're marked as his own forever. And you have him through his spirit. God convicts the believer that we are righteous. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8.16. That's what the spirit is saying to us. Through his spirit, God convicts the believer of his righteousness, of his favor. Jesus in Matthew 11 says, if, if, if you earthly fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does the father know how to give good things to those who ask him? And then in Luke 13, 11, 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Good gifts and the Holy Spirit are synonymous The Holy Spirit of God does not give us bad things like guilt, like condemnation, like shame. The fruit of the Spirit is not fear. It is not guilt. It is not shame. That does not come from God's Holy Spirit. You don't get bewilderment from Him. You don't get confusion or anxiety about where you stand with God. That's the fruit of our spirit. The sinful spirit that's naturally estranged from God that cannot believe the gospel. That's where that's coming from. We're bent away from God. Right? It's the fruit of sinful people. If it's not us, it's someone else who want to make us feel guilty all the time. It comes from our flesh. It comes from the devil trying to get us to either doubt God or straighten up and fly right. All this time we thought conviction was God trying to wake us up, but it's the manipulation of men. It's the manipulation of the evil one. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and judgment, believer, not you. Their need for righteousness in John 16, 8, not God's children, they are righteous. He does not instill a burdensome fear all the time in the heart of God's children. God is satisfied with you in Christ. 
What the Spirit does in us, according to Romans 8, is convict us that we're righteous in Jesus, that we're His child, that we belong to God. That's what He's doing in us. Please don't be led astray by the manipulation of men or of the adversary. Don't. God assures you with His seal. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. We have the Spirit in us as what? A constant motivator to keep you on the straight and narrow or as a guarantee that we will obtain our inheritance. It'd be really weird if he was the guarantee and the constant source of doubt. Right? It's not him. He testifies to us that we're God's children, not that we might not be. People do that. His commandments are not burdensome. Right? Stirring one another up to love and good works is by way of reminder in Hebrews of what Christ our high priest has already done for us. It's done with joy, not with pressure. Nobody, not even the most well-meaning person, can counsel us into heaven. You're not going to get counseled in. You get saved or you don't go. Rescued or you don't enter. Born again or you never see it. What I can tell you is that if you believe and confess in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's what I have the authority and the privilege to tell you, to speak grace in Christ to you. Let me close with this. I don't know how this happens. This was a much shorter message in my notes than it's become. Okay? So I'm going to shut her down early. I still have, look at that, I still have a... Estrangement from God, feeling like you're not close to Him, that's your, that's our automatic position. We're born with that. Nothing has to happen really for us to feel that. It just is. It's natural. We're under a curse. We, we, before we're born again, we, we doubt the truth. Believer, God is not estranged from us. We're estranged from him. Right? The, the, the problem is from our side, not his side. So if we don't have a constant magnetism pulling us back to God, like the gospel, pulling us back, pulling us back, pulling us back, we'll have the law, we'll fill that vacuum where the gospel should be with something to keep us. And the law is not laid down for the just, if that's what we decide to use. It's not for us. And the world and the flesh and the devil will be constantly pulling us back down to earth. And so what we need is a magnet in heaven constantly pulling us up towards it. Reminding us, God has given us the Holy Spirit as resonance with our magnet. Beloved, as, right, that testifies to Jesus, that testifies to the gospel, pulling you up, up, up. Everything else is trying to pull you down. Right? And remind you, no, no, you don't belong there. You don't have that. That's not true. That's not real. Do this, do that. Indulge your flesh. Don't believe. Doubt. All that. That's, that's everything else pulling you down. The gospel's pulling you up. The Spirit pulls us towards heaven. The Spirit lifts up Jesus. The Spirit testifies to Jesus. Yes, there are a ton of standards, but we've broken every one of them. And then we break the ones we create on our own too. But God pronounces a blessing on the ones that need it. 
the poor in spirit, the needy. Don't stop trying to please a father who's already pleased. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, the biblical one that makes all your religious friends think you're a heretic. Remember, that's the good news that will cause people to want to kill you. Verse 17, remember that. But the gospel is and ever will be sweet to bent reeds. So believer, beloved, truly fear the Lord. That is, stay needy. And know as you go this morning, believer. Know this as you go. And all who wish to call upon his name, know this. Jesus Christ is not letting go. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your promise. Lord, I thank you for your people. I thank you for our church. I thank you for those that will listen to this that don't know you yet. Father, have your way with us. Teach us the truth that we might believe, that we might understand. Watch over us as we go. Bring us back tonight for more. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.